1: Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Archaea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode of This is Success is brought to you by AT&T Business, providing edge-to-edge intelligence for businesses. From Business Insider, this is success. I'm Rich Filoni. Ray Dalio is one of the most influential figures in the world of finance. He started Bridgewater Associates out of his apartment in 1975 and grew it into the world's largest hedge fund. And now manages about $150 billion. Over his career, the billionaire investor has become well known for his unusual management style. This is rooted in what he calls radical transparency. At Bridgewater's Connecticut office, employees use iPads to rate each other's performance in real time. Nearly every meeting is recorded, and sometimes those recordings get used in company-wide emails. The culture there can be intense. And since the 80s, Dalio has been collecting principles, life lessons that can be used in and out of the office. In 2017, Dalio published his principles as a book, and it quickly became a New York Times bestseller. Dalio stepped back from management in 2017. He's still Bridgewater's co-chief investment officer and plans on investing for the rest of his life. But now, more than 40 years into his career, he's focused on passing on what he's learned. And he views success much differently than he used to.
0: My concept of success is having others successful without me. My concept of success before was being successful myself.
1: Ray Dalio was born in Queens, New York, in 1949.
0: Well, I, I, I was an only child. I had uh, a mother who really loved me a lot, and I had a dad who was a jazz musician, and he loved me a lot too. But he was out a lot, and I, um, you know, I basically, you know, I guess, pretty classic kid that lived in a neighborhood, and loved to play with, the, you know, the kids in the neighborhood. I guess I would say I didn't have. A lot of active guidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was more, you know, kind of on my own. And I loved life and I played with kids and uh, that was it.
1: Were you Didn't anal- like school.
0: Didn't like school. Were you analytical
1: like at that point? No, 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 no,
0: no. I wasn't that analytical. I think people would always say that I was, I had common sense. I was curious. I was always curious. Mm. Uh, Curiosity is a different thing than analytical. I was curious and um and I uh, like to think about a lot of different things and have interesting conversations with adults about interesting things politics the world yeah. and then and when I was 12 the markets because I caddied um I did a lot of odd jobs as a kid paper route and shoveled driveways in the snow and all that and then um but I earned some money from that and I caddied and when I was caddying and I was 12 Uh, The stock market was hot, and I bought my first stock. And it was the only company that I ever heard of that was selling for less than $5 a share. That was my criteria. I figured I could buy more shares. (laughs) Therefore, it goes up, I'll make more money. That was really naive. But I got lucky because the company was about to go broke, but some other company acquired it, and it tripled, and I thought the game was easy. and, And so that's what I got hooked on. So at about 12... I got hooked on the markets like one might get hooked on a video game or something.
1: What appealed to you from it? Was it kind of the the risk-taking? Well, the
0: game and the fact that I'd make money if I could do it well. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, I I think it was probably like it might be like imagine if you had a video game that you made money at if it paid off. The game itself is fun. Yeah. And then you like the rewards. And then the roller coaster begins, right? (laughs) Yeah. So okay, can you make money? Can you lose money? And then, so that had a big effect on my life, how I viewed
1: things. So this kind of approach of, that you would start to develop in adulthood of learning things, forming principles around that, there was really no indication of that as a kid.
0: Well, for me, learning was, the word learning can mean different things to different people, right? Mm -hmm. There's kind of this experiential learning and then there's going into a classroom and remembering, and there's that kind of learning, right? So for me, um, it was always this experiential learning, right? So that I, uh, I think I always had as a kid. Mm-hmm. The go into a classroom and do the remembering kind of learning, I, you know, w- wasn't good at it. I didn't like it. The experiential learning, I loved. So it would be almost like saying, did you like playing a video game? Playing the markets was great. Playing with my friends was great. But going in and reading a book and remembering it and getting tested on it just had no appeal to me. Yeah.
1: Dalio went to college on Long Island and studied finance. He then went on to graduate from Harvard Business School. Two years after getting his MBA, Dalio started Bridgewater, and he started to make a name for himself. But then he made a bad bet. And it took hitting rock bottom to change how he approached everything from investing to personal relationships. 1980,
0: I had calculated that American banks had lent a lot more money to emerging countries than they can pay back. And, it was very, and I said there'd be a debt crisis. And that was a very controversial point of view. And it got me a lot of attention. And it turned out to be right in that mm-hmm. Mexico defaulted. And so I thought I'm right I thought that, you know, I'm arrogant, I think, in believing and having confidence. And I was right on the default, and I was wrong on uh, what happened because that was the exact bottom in the stock market. Mm -hmm. And as a result of being wrong, um, I lost money for me. I lost money for my clients. I had to let everybody in my company go. And I got—I uh, was so broke I had to borrow four thousand dollars from my, uh, my dad to help pay for family bills.
1: How many people were you employing at that
0: point? Oh, not many—eight, maybe. But something. it was still—you you had was to my take ev- them out it of it. It was a job. my everything. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was my everything. It was my mission. It was my passion. Right. Yeah. And I loved those eight people. I didn't—I didn't want to lose them. Okay. And so, very, 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 very painful experience. But it changed my approach to decision making. Um, because, look, pain is a great teacher. You go forward toward your goals, you succeed and fail, but you really learn from your failures because they're the painful experiences, and if you can reflect on them well, you change. Um, My son uh, gave me in 2014 a book, Mm -hmm. uh, Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, and he says that, iconically, that what happens is um, that you will crash in your life at some point, and th- at that point um, you will either have a metamorphosis or you won 't and that more metamorphosis really it, it teaches you humility, you know pain teaches you humility, and so my experience changed my whole approach to decision making like it gave me the fear that I might be wrong that allowed me to incorporate that with my audacity, in other words i didn 't want to just get off the field and not play. Yeah. I still wanted to be great and make the best things happen and win, but I didn't want to have le- less r- risk in the sense that I, I didn't want to have less opportunity. I want to keep the opportunity the same, but I wanted to then be able to manage my risk better. And it changed my whole approach to decision-making because it then made me think, how do I know I'm not wrong? Yeah. And it made me be much more open-minded, to diversify better, to deal with my not knowing. Whatever success I've had in my life has been due more to my not my knowing how to deal with what I don't know than
1: because of anything I know. So this was a really profound experience. In this moment, how could you even find the lesson in it? Like, how did you do it with this?
0: Well, painful experiences of this sort. When you're in the moment, you may not be able to reflect very well because the emotion is taking control of you. When the emotion passes, um, you have a choice you can either move on and just do the next thing and not reflect, or you can reflect. Reflect. I urge you to reflect. Yeah. Now I think to some extent maybe meditation helped me. I, I had learned transcendental meditation, mm. so it gave me a certain equanimity to reflect. Um I don't I, I think that maybe my habit of trying to figure out well what was my mistake in trades and mm-hmm. and trying to then reflect on the trades so I would learn. But in any case, um, when the pain passes, don't just go forward, reflect. yeah, Because that's where your progress is.
1: Yeah, and, and just kind of uh, to look at it, with Transcendental Meditation, how you've said how important that is to you and even how that can help you reflect. I mean, I've learned it. I found it useful for me. With you, what would you say you might have a tendency towards that you found meditation to be something so profound in your life? There are the
0: two yous in you, basically. Um, there's the emotional you that comes from the subconscious. And under certain circumstances, it can produce stress. And that stress or that emotion can take you over. Um, and then there's the thoughtful part of you. Um, and both have advantages because the subliminal is bringing forward these intuitions and those types of things, and then the intellectual. And if you can be calm and resolve those things together, um, not only does it give you the calmness, it gives you better
1: thinking. In the early 90s, there was a Bridgewater employee named Ross Waller. He was the head of trading at the time, and he didn't make a trade he should have. It cost the company hundreds of thousands of dollars. But Dalio decided not to fire him. It's, it's okay to make mistakes. It's not okay not to
0: learn from them. So perfectly good people, I mean, all human beings make mistakes, right? The key is the learning from them. So he was a good person who made a mistake, and then the question was how are we going to learn from them? So I put into place an error log, which we now call an issue log, in which um, everybody in the company... Um, just has to write down whatever anything goes wrong, so that they bring it to the surface and that we learn from it. So that, Is was, that for you as well. Leg- of course, anybody.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you start to incorporate more and more transparency, of course, there's probably going to be some tension that arises. And in 1993, there was a conversation that you had with some of your leadership team where they basically confronted you. Could you tell me that story? yeah so backdrop
0: is um in order really to be effective, I think that people have to be very truthful with each other. Mm-hmm. First, that's because they have to try to agree on what is. they've got to get out of their heads, and if they think something's not right, mm-hmm. they've got to deal with it, otherwise it's not productive, and there's so much misunderstanding unless you lay your honest thoughts on the table. so improvement like that is sometimes difficult, but it is also really effective. Mm. So that total amount of transparency and truthfulness uh, was um, th- th- some, uh, a couple of people I work with, they said, well, that's demoralizing to people. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, you're demoralizing people w- by putting them in that kind of a position.
1: Yeah, they've got they some choice words. They said, uh, your approach was making people feel incompetent, unnecessary, humiliated, overwhelmed, belittled, oppressed, and otherwise bad. Those are, right. I mean, how
0: I didn't did not feel reading th-
1: that? I mean, that must I didn't have been want to pretty rough here. Right? I didn't
0: want to do those things. <laughs> yeah. that, I, didn't, I didn't want to make them feel yeah. demoralized, bad, That's and Some bad words, is. yeah. <laughs> So um what the what I thought about was well the the real question is how do we deal with it together. Mm-hmm. So we need to have a conversation. What should I do? What should you do? How should I do it? So I have a general principle. When you're not getting along with somebody or you're having a disagreement, stop, put that aside for a moment, go to a higher level and then say How should we be with each other? What are our ground rules for operating and why? Then go back into your disagreement and follow those protocols about how you should be with each other. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and that's what I did because, again, I was faced with, it It seemed, a trade-off. That was um, a choice between being totally truthful with each other or making people feel better and i wanted them to feel better and be able to make totally truthful so we face these junctures in our lives like i like i said in the earlier juncture i wanted to have all the upside with none of the downside and so in that particular case i figure well if i'm taking risk how do i take how do i have all the upside without the those unbearable mm-hmm. pains and you think that that's the choice that, that exists, but if you pause and you're clever, you can engineer that, and if you do that together. So what I did was to sit there
1: and say, okay, so how should we be with each other? I think it's interesting that your initial thought there was that we're either going to be honest or we're going to be happy, and that the, the in-between wasn't really there. How come for you, why is, as you say, like radical transparency, why is that... So important, where like maybe feelings can be hurt and stuff, why not be honest, but maybe a little bit more graceful with it, where someone maybe it could be a little bit more pleasant than Well the first heart of hurts. all, yeah. I think
0: it's a continuum, right, and then there's better and worse ways of um, communicating of, of continuum yeah. like, like you're, 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 you're saying um, you know there's honest, yeah, um, and then there's happy. Mm-hmm. the way that I look at happy is that you're short-term happy, but you're not long-term happy, okay? Hmm. Uh, In other words, I would say, okay, if if we don't deal with those circumstances that we need to deal with in a forthright way, we could all be happy, but it's gonna have adverse consequences in a lot of different ways. And if you start to realize intellectually that being really truthful with each other is something that is to be treasured, not only because it'll help you deal with the situations, but it also it'll build trust. There's a lot of trust that's going on. There's a lot of trust mm-hmm. that everybody knows we'll be talking about it and there won't be hidden agendas and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And once you start to rethink it and reprogram yourself, that you start to realize, I don't want to be in this highly political environment with all this stuff going on behind the scenes, right? Right. Um, And that I really appreciate it. And then you get in the habit of being able to do it well Mm -hmm. so that there's really good, clear communication and there's trust that's built. That is tremendously beneficial. So you have to understand that Bridgewater's success is that, right? In other words, it's it's knowing what you don't know and knowing, you know,
1: I, I, I may be wrong. That's the key to success, right? So for radical transparency to work, though, right, like it has to be done at like an organizational level, a team level. Otherwise, like wouldn't it just be when you sat down, like he's just acting like a jerk, like if you're just doing this on your own, right? Well, yes, you have to uh, agree any group of people and mm-hmm. maybe
0: your department maybe your whole company maybe the whole country i you know whoever yeah. it is <laughs> they have to agree on how they're going to behave with each other why everybody needs to do that so i think that notion of can we be radically truthful with each other can we know how to disagree well and then get past that disagreement to the best answers? These are questions that everybody has to face, but certainly they're interactive questions. So mm-hmm. whether it's in your department, or, but you can't unilaterally behave that way, and you need to talk about it. Otherwise, you'll have
1: misunderstandings. After the break, Ray Dalio tells us how the financial crisis shook Bridgewater in a good way.
0: Competitive Edge, presented by AT&T Business, is a new series forecasting the ways edge-to-edge intelligence is transforming our most familiar industries. Here, retail expert Andrew Au talks about big changes coming to the grocery aisle.
1: Today the buying experience is changing. Grocers who are securing the edge are challenged to match smart kitchens with smart aisles, with new technologies like IoT, like artificial intelligence, my smartphone can ping me with a personalized discount, and so if I click on that discount, I can be presented with a store map to actually find these items and be guided through the aisles with shelving that lights up as I approach it.
0: To watch the full episode and hear about the future of medium businesses that touch us all, visit businessinsider.com/competitive-edge.
1: We're back with Ray Dalio, and so. The next evolution, really, of this radical transparency kind of happened in the the early 2000s. And that was when that was kind of when Bridgewater was really going from, I guess you could say, like a boutique firm to like a large scale organization. Correct. And as that was happening, you wanted to retain the culture that you built to pass on the lessons you learned, the principles you learned. And this is when you really started to, to codify them. So if you get like a packet of your principles that you've acquired over the years and then you give them to your employees i mean if henry the founder of business insider and the ceo of business insider if he came to us with like a packet of uh his life lessons i feel like that would be something that we would be like "Whoa, what where's this coming from what is this yeah it didn't happen that way it didn't happen that way it didn't happen how did it how did it happen
0: well Again, in order to have this radical truthfulness and radical transparency, everything that I did pretty much was uh, recorded and everything that everybody did was pretty much recorded. Anything that was not personal, like Mm -hmm. if you have a family problem or something, we're not going to talk about. Anything that's proprietary, we wouldn't talk about. Mm -hmm. But pretty much anything was um, so that anybody could see because that builds the trust. If you want to have – and transparency helps a lot because people get to see things for itself. And then what I would do is as I would make decisions – I would write down my criteria for making the decision. So things were happening on a day-to-day basis. So imagine if Henry was, let's say, oh, you're seeing what Henry's doing, and he's made a decision. And then he's written down the principle behind why he made the decision. And then he's willing to talk about it with you. And he said, listen, how should we make those decisions? Do you think those criteria are good or or not? So it's not like, okay, here's a book. The book is just the accumulation of those kinds of things, and it's easy to go through, and that brings harmony, and that brings consistency, and that reinforces the culture. So part of that is to write that down and understand Mm -hmm. each other, and part of it is to also develop tools that help to facilitate that. So I developed a number of tools that facilitate that transparency and the understanding.
1: And, And to get back to an earlier point, I understand in terms of, writing down what's working and sharing that with the company, that to me makes sense. It seems to be a much bigger leap to being that we have to start recording everything so that we're all honest with each other in the sense that if I go meet with my manager and have a discussion that all of my colleagues need to be able to see this, or if uh, we had a discussion that maybe a conflict arose and it was resolved, that that would be shared with Colleagues, on here's what we can learn from this. I, I feel like that would be really difficult to adopt for people, especially feeling uncomfortable around yeah,
0: that. I want, uh, first of all, I want to be clear that anybody could do whatever they want with it, and it's all a matter of degrees of sure. what you want to do. But all of those degrees have choices. Mm-hmm. So I chose th- uh, that particular path for for various reasons I can describe. Mm-hmm. I think. Um, And now, but the question is, how truthful, how transparent Mm -hmm. do you want to be? And there are real benefits. I chose that radical truthfulness and that radical transparency because I figure there's nothing to be embarrassed about. And you produce understanding. And if people are going, they're just going through their evolutionary processes, their successes and their failures. And we made a compact among ourselves. Do we want to be this way with each other? Mm-hmm. Because, um, and so you it, it, you start to see everybody in their humanity, mm-hmm. uh, including, you know, the making of mistakes and then the learning from mistakes. And then also you avoid all the bad stuff that goes on in the dark, you know, you Deception happens behind the scenes. So you avoid Mm -hmm. all that deception. Um, So that's what worked great for us. I'm not saying others necessarily have to do it. They've Mm -hmm. gotta figure out
1: what's good for them. Yeah. So after the financial crisis, this is kind of when more of the public eye was on Bridgewater, just because you came out of that strong due to um, your analysis of where the economy was headed. And 2010 was the best year that Bridgewater had up up to that point. So when you start having the media looking at you, people not even in finance looking at you, discussing principles, at this point, people were saying, well, whoa, what is this? Was this hedge fund like in the shadows, like some secret cult or something? What did it feel like when you were challenged, like your whole way of approaching things was challenged from like a bunch of outsiders at this point?
0: In 2007, we anticipated the world financial crisis because we looked for these timeless and universal principles. Mm-hmm. We knew that the situation was very similar to the 1929 to 32 situation mm-hmm. because when interest rates hit zero, the central bank can't ease anymore and you have a debt crisis and certain things have, need to be done. Mm-hmm. So it was that approach to principles and this way of operating That allowed us to anticipate the financial crisis of 2008, and we did very well in that crisis, where most everybody lost money in that crisis. And as a result, we started to receive attention. Mm -hmm. And then people started to think, well, what is this? A cult is this way of operating? Mm -hmm. And I didn't want attention. I didn't want public attention. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do this kind of media. I just wanted to be quiet. And so what I did is I put our principles in a PDF file, Mm -hmm. and I put it out on our website for anybody who wanted, they could download it. And it was downloaded three and a half million times, and people started to get the understanding and started to say, whoa, this is a different way of
1: operating, Mm -hmm. and it's very interesting. And so that's what happened. So when you're saying that you have your investing principles, and that's... um, what allowed Bridgewater to be successful, the accumulation of these principles for investing, you've applied that to kind of just the human experience as well. All decision Yeah, is it almost, are your principles for life and work, is that almost kind of like the same way that you would write an algorithm for uh, trading? It's, exa- it's exactly the same. But for a person? It's yeah. exactly the same. One of the great things I'd like to pass
0: along is the power of having people write down their decision rules when they're making that decision. How do you mean? I think most people just make decisions. Mm-hmm. And instead of just doing that, if you make your decision and a- shortly after or shortly before, take the time and say, in this particular type of situation, here are my criteria for making that decision. That's the reason why. And you write it down in a very, very clear way. It makes you think about your criteria better. It allows you to communicate with people better. So that idea of writing that down applies to all decision-making. You can do that in all Mm decision-making. And you can even go beyond that. This is the power that we're now in, in the world with converting thoughts to algorithms, mm-hmm. you can go beyond that, and you could take those criteria and have data input and have that operate in parallel with your decision making. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's more and more where we're headed, and that's mm-hmm. what we've done.
1: Um, and that, that's the process. Was there ever a moment throughout your life, really, where one of your principles? it turned out to be incorrect as, as something was unfolding and you realized maybe this isn't working for me or oh, you, yeah, you, I th- yeah
0: i, I, I think um, the development of the principles it's an evolutionary process of change um just like we personally experience an evolutionary process of change our thinking changes as we l- learn over a period of time it's just more explicitly progressed mm-hmm. and that's what this compendium of principles is that's the book that's you know, the hot book, Mm -hmm. it's because it just evolves over that period of time. And here it is, and it's still evolving. I'm still learning.
1: After hitting a new level of success coming out of the financial crisis, Dalio began considering what would happen to Bridgewater after he was gone. It was his life's work. And continuing its success would be no easy feat. So he set into motion a succession plan. It started with appointing a new co-CEO in 2010, Greg Jensen. Jensen was his protege and Bridgewater's head of investing. But Jensen ran into some of the same problems Dalio did back in 2008 when there was too much overlap between the investment and management sides of the business. In 2016, Dalio decided that Jensen should return to his former role. The change meant Dalio's succession plan had to change too. He couldn't back off just yet. In his book, Dalio took responsibility for the botched plan. He also called it his biggest regret during his time at Bridgewater.
0: First of all, I would say a lot of learning comes from having the same mistake over and over again until you learn it. So in my particular case I you know the company grew up under me and there I was and I was handling too many things and and I was getting by and I was figuring out how to get those things by but not adequately. Mm-hmm. And then I figured okay now that's my situation my dilemma and I should pass along both my dilemma and my circumstances to him and we should try to figure out how to deal with that together. Mm -hmm. But in other words, I can't not pass it along, and yet we don't have a solution yet, and so we will try to deal with that together. Mm -hmm. That's the path that we went down, Mm -hmm. and we found out that we couldn't do that together because it was just too much for him, too much for me. Mm -hmm. So I guess I would say Uh, You know, you form a theory, and the theory doesn't work, and then Mm -hmm. you try again, and you form another theory, and that's part of the learning process.
1: What has been your experience with succession? What has that taught you as a leader?
0: Oh, it taught me so many, many different things. It was, first of all, I should say, when I began my succession process, I thought it was going to take me probably about two years. But when I say I thought that, I also knew not to believe that. Simultaneously, one can say, I think this is going to happen, Mm -hmm. but I shouldn't bet on it. If you haven't done something three times uh, before successfully, don't assume you know how to do it. And I knew what the arc of my life would be. Um, in other words, I know as I go from 60 to 70 mm-hmm. that um, I have to transition well and I want to really make the people successful without me. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to have that particular experience. So I allowed up to 10 years for that to happen. Mm-hmm. I figured two, but I say, okay, <laughs> I better plan for 10 because I'm sure. not sure if I'm going to be able to do that. And then I learned I learned how people see things differently. I learned not to assume that somebody can do something until they're doing it already. I learned that others had to be involved, that um, the best thing for me to do was to bring in other people to do that. I originally didn't think I needed a board, Mm. for example. I figured I've run the company in this way for all of that particular time, Mm -hmm. and so I don't want some board to come in and operate where they're um, outside telling uh, me what to do or the leader what to do. I then realized that I need to have a a board that would operate well. So I get the best advice I can from the smartest people. I went to Jim Collins, very smart guy, who's, um, you know, that's his expertise. Uh, Yeah, management consultant, yeah. And I asked him, he said, well, you only have to do two things. You have to pick the uh, CEO who's going to be successful, a great CEO, Mm -hmm. and you have to have a board. That will monitor whether the CEO is successful and get rid of them and change if if he doesn't. Mm-hmm. It takes me out of it. It takes those out of it. And so I that learned. That helped you step back. Yeah, I yep. learned about governance systems. How does this, how does the governance system work? Mm-hmm. How do you select the people? Different. How do you try those people? So I learned all of those things, and you know I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. But it was the learning of that, and that that made us
1: successful in the transition. Yeah. I mean, when you read principles, it kind of seems like here's a very cohesive worldview. Um, I'm now ready to pass it on. But since then, has there been anything surprising that you've learned about yourself, about how to just approach life in general?
0: Well, I learned, I'm beginning to experience for the first time in my life, uh, the total freedom from obligation, the Mm. total freedom. Okay, what do I want to do? Uh, of course, I'm in this transition phase, which has, means that I'm passing things along. Mm-hmm. But the, the, what is it like to be free of obligation and do all the things that you're excited about? I'm doing a lot of things that I'm excited about, and I love the markets. Yeah. I'm still spending you know, 80% of my time um, on markets, which is more than I used to, Mm -hmm. uh, because I had the CEO job. And so now I'm in a position where the economy, the markets, that's my game. I'll always play that Mm -hmm. game. But with that open canvas, um, I can do things like pass along these principles. I'm interested in ocean exploration. I love being uh, around my family, Mm -hmm. uh, my grandkids, I learn, you know, all of these different things. So I'm experiencing that element of the freedom of this new phase of my life. Yeah. And I'm thinking about it. I'm writing
1: down principles about it. And yeah. That's it. Do you think you're going to miss that engagement with the day-to-day of Bridgewater?
0: I'm I'm going to be this chief investment officer as long as they want me okay. to be. Okay, yeah. I'm playing so that it, yeah. game. <laughs> they want me to do it. I want to do it. And I'll do
1: it as long as I'm welcome to do it. And I love to do it. Yeah. I also wanted to know, as we're thinking about these different stages of your life, what is your concept of success in this stage right now, as opposed to the Ray who was building up Bridgewater, scaling it, as opposed to the concept of success that Ray had when you were a young man?
0: My concept
1: of success is having others successful
0: without me. mm mm-hmm. My concept of success before was being successful myself.
1: Mm-hmm. And what did that mean
0: success? How did you define that? Well, success was whatever mission I was on. It mm-hmm. could be play the game in the markets and be successful. It could be build a company and be successful. Sure. It could be be a successful parent. Okay, now it's none of those things, right? It's I've evolved to the stage where to have others successful without me being successful is the most beautiful thing i can do so that's
1: a big difference you see what i mean yeah so that's you're at the the final stage of that hero's journey that you were talking about yeah i'm in i'm in that transition to phase three yeah well thank you so much ray it's a pleasure thanks for listening to this is success from business insider our show is produced by jennifer siegel and sarah wyman dan Bobkoff is our executive producer I'm Rich Filoni. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know which guests you've enjoyed and who you want to hear from next. We'll be back next month with a new episode of This is Success. But before we go, I asked Ray Dalio what he's been reading lately. Right now I'm exploring history and
0: understanding the arcs of the rises and declines of empires, particularly I was interested in the rise and decline of of reserve currencies. And the book that I found most interesting was Paul Kennedy's Rise and Decline of Great Powers. I think that was a, that's a real good book.
1: This is Success is a production of Insider Audio. This episode has been brought to you by AT&T Business.